The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I wanted to continue talking about right view, which is the first aspect of the of the Eightfold Path, right view, the first aspect of the Eightfold Path, which is a path that the Buddha taught as practices that will support our understanding, uh, support our, our mind's um, kind of shifting direction uh, to become free from our habits, our patterns, the ways we usually um, wind ourselves into suffering frustration or suffering is not just you know massive kinds of of suffering but but the more subtle even the more subtle kinds irritation annoyance depression um, that the, all of these ways in which we feel basically unsatisfied with our lives uh, the the promise of the Buddha in terms of engaging in these practices is that we can become free of them and and be um, completely free of that kind of mental distress. So the first aspect of the Eightfold Path is right view. And I'll just mention the aspects of the Eightfold Path briefly because we're doing a kind of a, a series in a way. I'm not, it's not a published series. I just decided a couple months ago to talk about the Four Noble Truths and I'm kind of winding my way through the whole terrain of it. Um, and now we're talking about the Eightfold Path. So the, eight, the aspects of the Eightfold Path are right view, right, uh, right intention, right speech, right, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So these uh, kind of fit together in a way that the first aspects are the understanding and intentions that need to come into play in order for us to begin to engage in a life that uh, is oriented towards non-harming, and that's these middle three, right speech, right action, right livelihood, are expressions of the, um, the mind that wants to engage in the world in a, in a non-harming way. And from that exploration of engaging in the practices of right speech, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, we become more attuned to the factors of our mind that incline us in the direction to engaging in wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood. And with that sensitivity of becoming more attuned with how our mind works, we move into the, the last aspect, the last three aspects of the Eightfold Path, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, which are basically practices and tools that help us to understand how our minds work and begin to redirect our, um, our minds in a more skillful direction. The entire practice begins with this reorientation around our view. And I talked last week, I talked about how view is so important in our lives. That um, the views that we hold, even unconscious views, and maybe even especially unconscious views, kind of um, make our choices, incline us to act in certain ways. So last time we talked about some of the views that we hold that don't support us very much. And um, I began to point in the direction of what the Buddha calls right view, which is the view that does support us towards this direction of peace and happiness in our, in our lives, in our minds. So um, there are different ways that this right view of the Buddha is defined. And I'll just mention a few of them. And then what I'd like to do is talk primarily about one of them today and then perhaps a little bit more about some of the others in subsequent um, mornings. So some of the different ways that right view is defined. Um, one of the main ways it's defined is as an understanding of the Four Noble Truths. That, that, that the, the orientation of... Um, how we meet our experience is 
kind of shifted as we understand the truth of the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth that it's possible for us to be free of that suffering, and the truth of the Eightfold Path, the truth of the path leading to the ending of suffering. Now, the Buddha, the Buddha doesn't suggest that we simply believe this, that this just becomes something that we adopt as belief, but rather that it is uh, practice, practices that we engage in. So this right view of the Four Noble Truths isn't just simply about saying, okay, yep, check, I believe that, I believe that, yep, they're suffering, check. Uh, but rather to engage with practices, understand suffering, let go of the cause of suffering, uh, realize for ourselves the ending of suffering, and cultivate these tools, the practices of the Eightfold Path. So this orientation around right view is not just about it, it, it is a, a reframing of our of what is important to us. It's kind of a, a putting something as a priority in our in our minds. You know, this understanding of how suffering works. If I want to to have happiness in my life, this understanding of how suffering works in terms of the four noble truths that's important. I need to to kind of put that into the four. So that's one definition of um, of right view is that someone with right view is orienting their lives through that framework, through that perspective. Um, Another definition of right view is um, the understanding of karma. Um, And that's primarily what I'd like to talk about today. Um, The the teaching on karma is, it's a teaching on cause and effect of um, kind of a... It's, it's kind of a natural law that, that our, our world is governed by natural laws. The whole of our um, world, the universe, is governed by various kinds of natural law. The natural law of physics of the universe, of you know, gravity and um, how the planets move, and the natural laws of, of weather and... Um, then there's the natural laws of um, how our minds work, which is in the realm of karma. So the um, you know the understanding of karma, you know, the, the the law of karma, kind of a, a couple of different ways to think about karma is that um, the natural the karma is a natural law that our actions have consequences. And karma is a kind of a description of how, of how those consequences relate to our actions. So I'll, I'll talk more about this in a moment, but before I kind of go into to depth on karma, I want to just go back through a couple of the other uh, ways that right view is defined. Um, there's another way that it's defined, and this one, I think, really overlaps between both the definition of the Four Noble Truths and the uh, teaching of karma, and it is an understanding of what is skillful and what is unskillful in terms of leading us towards happiness and away from suffering. So there's a, a whole teaching that just kind of orients our understanding not so much using the words of karma or the Four Noble Truths, but just around these things are skillful, these things are unskillful. You know, these actions, these choices of body and speech are unskillful. These choices of mind are unskillful. The Buddha lists ten courses of unskillful action and ten courses of skillful action. And then he goes on to say, and underneath those courses of action are what we could call the roots of um, of, of those actions, the, the, the roots of the mind that kind of propel us into making the choice to act in those ways. So the roots of the unskillful being greed, aversion, delusion. The roots of the skillful being non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. So there's a whole teaching around orienting, in terms of right view, orienting us towards just looking at what's skillful, what's unskillful, and kind of inclining to understand, is there greed, aversion, or delusion at work in how my mind is working? So that's another way that right view is defined. Um, There's two more ways that I can 
call up in my mind now as to, in terms of how the uh, Buddha d- talked about right view. And one of those is um, the teaching of dependent origination. And this is a very complex teaching, and I will just in the briefest and barest of ways um, describe a little bit about it. It's basically a very detailed description of how our suffering comes to be in our minds, this teaching of dependent origination. It's a set of cause and effect links, a chain of causal links that describe how we go from just meeting experience, sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, through reacting to those experiences, through constructing an identity around those, and to um, suffering because of that identity. So it's a very it's a it's a it's a complex teaching, but there there are places in which the Buddha de- defines right view in terms of of that teaching. So I just wanted to put that out there. Um, and then uh, the last way that I can think of at the moment in terms of how the Buddha defines right view is in terms of understanding. And I think this one this one um, points to kind of there are different ways that wisdom works in our minds. Um, and wh- right view is an, a manifestation, an expression, let's say an expression of wisdom. And the, the Buddha talked about there being uh, three kinds of wisdom. That there's the wisdom that we can take in just by hearing, by reading. And so that, that wisdom, we, we learn about things. And without learning about them, then there's, there's not much hope that we'll discover them on our own. It's possible, but um, you know, there's, there's the, the aspect of learning that comes into play with wisdom. And then from that learning, that's the first kind of wisdom. It's just this wisdom that comes from hearing things. And then the second kind of wisdom is the wisdom that comes from our actively reflecting on what we've learned. The wisdom that comes from reflecting on using our intelligence, using our capacities for reasoning, our capacities for reflection about what we've learned, and making choices based on those reflections. So that's the second aspect, is using our intelligence, um, reflective capacity of our mind to think about our, what we've learned. The third kind is the wisdom that comes through actually... Um, meeting our experience directly. It's the wisdom that comes through insight. It's the wisdom that comes through directly understanding what we've learned, what we've reflected on. That the, in the Buddhist understanding about wisdom, it's not just simply hearing about teachings and then thinking about them that leads to the freedom. It's the engaging in the practices that allow us to directly see, directly witness the truth of these teachings. And that's when wisdom becomes our own. That's when these, these um, truths of, uh, of wise view become something that we live in and not just think about. So this last aspect, this last way that wise view is defined in the, in the teachings seems to me to be more in this category of what we've understood. It's not so much something to do but it's it's the insights that result. And um, the Buddha says something like, for one who has right, wise view, it's impossible that they would take something to be permanent. It's impossible that they would take something to be um, happiness that is uh, unreliable. So it's, impossible, it's impossible that they would... Um, make a movement to um, um, hold on to something that is inherently unreliable. And it's impossible that they would see things as themselves. So it's basically this last way of of defining the Four Noble Truths. I mean, the the right view is um, insight into impermanence, insight into the unreliability of our experience and insight into the not-self nature of our experience. So that um, this, is, this is kind of, the, those are the insights that free our minds. 
So this also points to the kind of dual nature of right view, that, um, you know, it is both the learning that we need to begin with to reorient our minds, to, to, to direct our, uh, our actions, our choices in a direction that will lead us more to happiness, and it is also um, right view also represents the the way our mind is transformed. That um, one who one who has followed this path and has let go of the holding on to things, the the, the idea of that holding on to things will make me happy. One who's let go of that has this right view, not as a reflective idea, but as a lived, embodied... Um, it's, it's a, the, 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 their view becomes not something they have to think about, it's just something that they're living from. So it's not that they have to consider, oh, do I want to do this or do I want to do that? The choice is made based on this wisdom act out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion becomes the natural expression of someone who has traveled this path. So there's lots of different ways that right view is understood and so I want to spend some time mostly today talking about about karma. Karma is a word that's, uh, that's used a lot in our culture <laughs> and um, so I want to be clear about what it means in this context. What is this teaching? So as I said um, a little earlier, it's understood to be a natural law. It's not, it's not, um, it's not, it's not it, from this perspective, it's not just a good idea. It's just that this is, this law of how our choices operate and that, that our choices have consequences, our actions have consequences, and that we'll, we will receive the results of those uh, choices at some point in our existence. And that the, the law of karma just basically lays it out. Here's, what we'll, here's the way, here's the direction that we'll tend to go if we act in these ways, and here's the direction that we'll tend to go if we act in these ways. So Bhikkhu Bodhi gave a very succinct definition of the law of karma, um, and that is the capacity of our intentional actions to produce an ethically appropriate result. So this is, what does this mean? (laughs) The capacity of our intentional actions to produce an ethically appropriate result. So the... um, I'll start looking at this. I'm going to, there's basic three, three places of the definition. There's the intentional action. What is intentional action and how do we understand that? There is the appropriate result. Um, you know, what is the, what is the, I'm sorry, ethically appropriate result or um, what is that? And then what does this capacity part mean? What does it mean, the capacity of our intentional actions to produce an ethically appropriate result. So the intentional actions um, are actions of our body, of our speech, um, and, and of our mind come from an intention, come from a place inside of us. They're not random. They are um, motivated by some cause. So our, you know, when we, if we, if we take some kind of an action, you know, it might be just a simple action of, of standing up right now. And that action of standing up is perhaps motivated by the need to go to the bathroom or something like that. So, you know, there's, there's some kind of actions that have a kind of a neutral kind of motivation. Then um, there may be, uh, that same action might be motivated by... Um, um, remembering something that you forgot in your house and there, there being a sense of fear around having forgotten that thing and that you, you feel like, oh, I, have to, I have to go do something about this because I can't stand the way this feels. 
this fear feels. So standing up may be motivated by fear. Or perhaps um, um, it's motivated by a desire to be someplace more pleasant. You know, it's really nice outside. Why don't I, you know, not sit in here and listen to this talk, but instead go outside and hang out in the sunshine. So it could be motivated by that kind of greed. So that the action itself is one piece, and then there's an intention associated with, or there's a motivation associated with that. So in the, in the Buddhist understanding, um, the term intention is often used very specifically. So I want to just clarify that a little bit, so just in case there's any confusion. Um, the term intention is often used to mean just that kind of impulse that motivates our actions. Um, every action that we make, you know, just that movement of my hands, there was a kind of an intention of mind that motivated that action. Every action that we do, of body, of speech, even of mind, has this impulse behind it, a little oomph in our mind. That little oomph itself is neutral. It will precede every action. But always, always accompanying that impulse to do something is a associated motivation, a reason why that impulse arose. So, uh, you know, as I said, so, so it, might, it might break down kind of like this. There's a feeling in your body of pressure in your bladder, and because of that pressure, there's the intention to go to the bathroom, and that impulse to move arises, and you stand up. So the, pre- the preceding action was, or the preceding motivation was, the feeling of the full bladder and the intention to go to the bathroom. So that's the motivation in that case. In another case, it might be that you're sitting here meditating and you know, your mind is drifting off into thoughts and you remember something. Oh, I forgot to turn off the stove. Okay. And then fear arises. And then that fear is what prompts us to that intention into, into um, doing something. So that that intention is then associated with that quality of fear. So the... Uh, the intention is kind of the direction, or the, the intention is the kind of impulse, an energetic impulse, and the motivation that's associated with that intention is uh, the direction of that impulse, the direction that action will tend to take us. So the, um, the direction of our actions, the direction of our actions, is um, kind of guided by that impulse, by that motivation that's accompanying that intention. So here's where this, uh, the, um, the connection between the action and the result comes into play. Because it is the, uh, the motivation accompanying that impulse that sends us either towards more, more happiness or more suffering. And that the Buddha was mostly interested in what will lead us to happiness, what will lead us away from suffering. So all of his teachings kind of revolve around this. So his, his, um, the understanding here is that when we engage in um, actions that are accompanied by a motivation that includes greed, aversion, or delusion, we will tend to head in the direction of suffering. If we uh, engage in an action accompanied by a motivation of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, or to put it more positively, uh, generosity, kindness, and wisdom, then our, um, the direction that we'll be headed is towards non-suffering, towards happiness. So this is the connection between our intentional action and the ethically appropriate result. So that when we engage in activities, when our motivations are accompanied by greed, aversion, and delusion, we will at some point reap the consequences of that, feeling some kind of suffering. If we engage out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, then the direction heads in the other way. We 
uh, are inclining our, uh, our, our minds, our experience in the direction where we will then receive the consequences of non-suffering, more of happiness. So at this point, so this is kind of the, the there's kind of a distinction here between what the, the teachings understand to be the karma and the results of karma. So the karma, the teaching, the karma itself um, is the intentional action, that motivation and, and action together. That's the karma. It's like a seed that we're planting. The karma is often, is often um, compared to a seed that the seed, the seed has the capacity to grow, right? The seed has the possibility of producing something. The seed has its own inherent direction to produce something. It will produce an apple tree if it's an apple seed. It will produce a, an orange tree if it's an orange seed. Um, so that, that that capacity is inherent in that seed. So the seed itself is what's called the karma. And then the results of the, of the karma are the consequences, the results of that, um, that seed coming to fruition. So again, coming back to the analogy of the, um, the, the seeds growing into trees, the, the karma is the seed and the result of the karma is the tree growing. Um, well, actually I should say the karma is the capacity of that seed to produce a tree. And the result is what happens to that seed in the future. It will possibly grow into an apple tree it will never grow into an orange tree. So it's got a direction that it's headed, that seed. So likewise with our intentional actions. When those actions are accompanied by greed, aversion, and delusion, the capacity of those intentions, that the, the motivation and intentions, is to grow into suffering. From the uh, other perspective, if we... Um, incorporate a non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, if that's how we're acting, then the capacity of those seeds, those actions, is to result in happiness, non-suffering. So, I want to talk a little bit more about the capacity piece, and capacity for these... um, our intentional actions to produce an ethically appropriate result. I hope that so far you have a sense of the intentional actions and the ethically appropriate result. And essentially, if we're engaging out of um, unskillful actions, we are going to reap the consequences of those unskillful actions by suffering. If we engage out of skillful actions, we will reap the consequences of those skillful actions by having more happiness in our lives. So the capacity piece. Um, you know, if we go back to that seed analogy, um, that seed might land on rocks. It might land in a desert, or it might land on fertile soil. So the seed itself can't produce the tree all by itself. It needs conditions. It needs conditions surrounding it to come to fruition. Um, you know, it might, you know, fall into a crack in the sidewalk and find just a little bit of soil and a little bit of rain and produce this little, you know, stunted little thing, right? Or it might land in somebody's garden and actually have the opportunity to grow into a full tree. So that tree, that, that seed has a capacity but there's not a deterministic result that will come from that seed. 
It is not that every single apple seed is going to produce an apple tree. It has that capacity. It will head in that direction given the uh, appropriate conditions. And so this is one of the key pieces of this law of karma. That it's not deterministic. In the time of the Buddha, there were a lot of um, teachings on cause and effect, teachings around this actions having consequences. Uh, One of them was that there are no consequences of our actions. Everything is completely random. You know, it really doesn't matter what we do. And the Buddha said, that is wrong view. You know, that, that is, it's, it's not in alignment with truth. It, it is basically, it's wrong. <laughs> and then there was another view that was something along the lines of, well, if you act like this, then lockstep, this is going to be the result. So if you, you know, if you um, steal, then you're going to get this consequence or, you know, something along the lines of as simple as, you know, if you murder somebody, you'll go to hell. That kind of view around um, cause and effect of our actions. And the Buddha said that karma is way more complex than that. In fact, one of the things he said around karma is that it's really not possible to fully comprehend all of the different pieces that come together to make, um, to make, you know, in, in a particular choice, for example, just think about how did you get here? You know, how did you get here today? I mean, there's the obvious thing of getting in your car and driving here or walking here or however you got here. But then there's also the choices that came into play when you got up, whether or not you felt uh, well enough or um, how you felt, you know, there may be people at home this morning who didn't feel well enough to come something like that. Um, Then there's all kinds of more distant causes. Um, You know, who introduced you to the Dharma? How did you even find out about this center? You know, what, what made you become interested in hearing about the practice of, of the teachings? And we can go further back to, you know, if your parents hadn't gotten together on a certain evening, you know, you wouldn't even be here. So there's all kinds of causes and conditions, choices that come into play that bring us to this moment. And the Buddha said that we cannot possibly know all of the threads of karma, either how it's come together to bring us to this moment or how it will unfold into the future. But he did say that at this moment, in this particular moment, the best thing that we can do for ourselves is to look at our intentions and to act skillfully, act out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, and that will head us in the best direction that we can possibly go. So the, uh, another piece around the... Um, the karma and this capacity is that there's no particular, and this is another bit of the complexity of, of karma, how it's understood, how it unfolds, is that there's no particular um, time frame in which we experience the consequences of our actions. So a simple example of telling a lie you might, um, you know, in the moment, you know, have, you know, talking to somebody that you know, you tell a lie about something. And in that very moment, what you might feel is relief. Oh, I got away with it. Um, and it may be that there's no particular consequences of that lie for a very long time. But at some point, perhaps, your friend, your, this person you told the lie to, finds out that you told the lie. You know, two years later, they find out you told the lie. And then there are some consequences. Now, the, the, the depth of those consequences will vary 
depending on many things. And this is another aspect of the complexity of karma. Um, but in any case, there's the, and I'll get into that in just a moment. There's this understanding that our, you know, our cons- the consequences can unfold. They can unfold here and now. You know, we may, in that moment, maybe we feel relief of having told that lie and gotten away with it. But some other part of us may have this niggling sense of, how are they going to find out? What are they going to find out? Are they going to find out? When are they going to find out? So the mind is kind of agitated and restless. And that's a form of dukkha. That's a form of, of suffering. That restless, agitated mind. The fact that the mind cannot just be simply relaxed and at peace. So there, there are some times that there is an immediate consequence to our actions. And if you look into your experience, you can begin to see this. And I think that actually one of the ways that our meditation practice, our mindfulness practice unfolds is that it makes the consequences of unskillful action more apparent in the moment. And so we begin to see the benefit of not engaging in those much more clearly in the moment. So there's that aspect that sometimes when we take action, there can be a kind of an immediate repercussion. But there is also the sense that it may not happen for years. And in the teaching of the Buddha, sometimes not until future lives come will this come back to us. Will this particular action come back to us? And again, if we think about that seed, you know, seeds, seeds can sit in an envelope in a store for years, you know, those poor seeds, you know, <laughs> they never have the opportunity to grow. And then somebody comes along and buys them and, you know, puts them into the conditions and they still have that capacity to produce that tree. So likewise, our actions, our choices with these intentions have that capacity when the conditions are appropriate that result will come to us. Now, how that result comes to us varies widely. I'm going to read you a little bit from the Buddha. He says, There is a case where a trifling evil deed done by a certain individual takes him to hell. There is the case where the very same sort of trifling deed done by another individual is experienced in the here and now and for the most part barely appears for a moment. So this, um, this understanding is kind of... Um, I mean, you can kind of think about the climate of our minds in a way. That if our... You know, suppose that when we planted it, you know, years ago, we did something, lied to somebody, and, and, you know, hadn't particularly dealt with it or nothing had particularly come from it. But then, um, you know, you met the Dharma and started cultivating your mindfulness and purifying your intentions and acting more skillfully perhaps going back and apologizing to people, something along those lines, um, so that the climate of the mind has changed. It's like it becomes less fertile for unwholesome karma. The more we cultivate our minds, the less fertile it is for unwholesome karma, and the more fertile it is for wholesome karma. So that those unwholesome seeds that we planted, not to say that they won't come back to us in some way, but the consequences can be greatly diminished by the way we have chosen to change our lives. So the the Buddha gives another analogy here. He says, suppose that a... Suppose that one were to drop a salt crystal into a small amount of water in a cup. What do you think? Would that water in the cup become salty because of the salt crystal and unfit to drink? If they take a teaspoon of salt and put it into a glass, it's not going to be drinkable. 
Now suppose you were to drop that, that salt into the river Ganges. Just assume the river Ganges is pure, unpolluted. <laughs> Would the water in the river Ganges become salty because of the salt and unfit to drink? No. The vast amount of water dilutes that teaspoon of salt. And it becomes unnoticeable when you take a glass of water from that vast amount of water. And so likewise, the, you know, the, the climate of our minds greatly impacts how we will experience the results of our karma. So I really think that primarily what this... So I'm going to say that definition to you again and see if it makes more sense to you now. So karma, the natural law of karma, is the capacity of our intentional actions to produce an ethically appropriate result. What this points us to is the moment, looking into the moment. As I said, that the only place we have a choice about what our motivation and our intention is, is in this moment. All the choices we made in the past, we can't go back and undo those. But we can choose here and now to begin to purify our mind, to change that soil so that it becomes more hospitable to uh, wholesome karma and less hospitable to unwholesome karma. So the choices that we make in this moment are what guides us in the direction of freedom. I have more that I could say, but I want to see if there's any... I mean, sometimes this, this brings up questions, so I want to leave an opportunity for, for questions this morning. So in relationships when something's going on that I don't like, and, um, and sometimes I try to change my behavior. When you were talking about intention, on the one hand, my intention is to have a more peaceful interaction, so it's motivated by that, but it's also motivated by aversion because I just don't like what's going on, and, and I, I imagine it's like that with a lot of... This is a great question. Couples. I'm so glad you asked this. <laughs> because... We do have mixed motivations. There's, you know, that, that um, pretty much until we are, I mean, the understanding is pretty much until we're fully awakened and full, until we're fully enlightened, there will be greed, aversion, and delusion mixed in with non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion in our, in our actions and in our choices. So um, the way I like to explore this is... Um, First of all, to acknowledge, I mean, one of the most important pieces is to not have those aversive motivations, those greed, aver- the, the motivations out of greed, aversion, and delusion, be in the unconscious territory. If they're in the unconscious terrain, then they're going to prompt actions without our really being aware of it. You know, so, so again, you know, that this is another p- important piece about karma. It's not just our conscious choices that head us in, the direction, in this direction. It's not just our conscious choices that plant these seeds. It's, it's even choices that come out of unconscious motivations, you know, things that aren't clearly seen in our mind. So the, um, the first step here is to make these choices, make these, um, this intention and the motivation conscious in our minds. So... The awareness, just the awareness, first of all, that there is a version along with this wish for peace is a great first step. If you were just thinking, oh, what I really want is peace, but, you know, that's, that's, that's my, I'm, my motivation's really pure, but then there's something underneath that's got this aversion, you know, it may come out in the way you act somehow without your really being aware of it. And so the awareness of those intentions is a huge thing. To, to recognize, okay, yep, there is this aversion present, even while there is this desire for peacefulness in the relationship. 
So just that recognition is, is first. Can you acknowledge, yep, okay, so there's some unskillful motivation here, and there's some skillful motivation here. So acknowledging that both are present. And then um, knowing that that unskillful motivation is present, we can kind of be um, attuned to how it might erupt <laughs> in our action, you know, in harsh speech or in, in unskillful action. Um, so we can be attuned to that and potentially, I mean, not always, but this is, this is the direction that we, we work towards. Over time, we work towards being able to not act, not have those motivations in the mind kind of come out into the way that we engage, particularly around the precepts, particularly around harming. Um, so we, we kind of see if we can choose in a way to act more out of the wholesome motivation. You know, so when you've got a choice to make and you see both sides happening, can you kind of give a little more weight in a way? You know, recognize that the unskillful is there. Be very attuned to that because if you're not aware and attuned to it, it can easily just you know, create that action. And then it's really hard to take back the actions. Um, and see if you can land more in the intention of, yes, peacefulness is what really the intention is. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, when we start to operate more from the intentions of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, um, we seem less attached to how we get from here to there. With the intentions of greed, aversion, and delusion, at least it seems to me that often we are quite attached to how a particular result comes about. And with uh, you know, landing more in the notion of, okay, peacefulness is what I'm interested in here, rather than not wanting something or wanting to get rid of something, Sometimes when we're oriented around the, the wholesome motivation, our minds can open to different avenues of finding a way towards that peace that the mind contracted around aversion won't see. So that um, you know, if we can kind of just open to that wholesome intention a little bit more fully, acknowledging that unwholesome intention. And that's how we live our lives. I mean, that's the path. That is very much the path that we engage with. The, I mean, the Buddha suggested we understand our suffering. And that sense of aversion arising in the present moment has that feeling of suffering. It's, it's got that sense of something's wrong, something's out of kilter, I don't like this. So there's suffering there. And the Buddha suggested to turn and understand that. So not to repress it, not to say, oh, that's an unwholesome motivation, I'm supposed to like not, never experience those. The Buddha actually said, no, we need to experience in them and understand them. So I hope that was helpful, a little bit addressing your sense a little bit. We'll find out. (laughs) So I get the sense this morning from your talk, which seems to me to be, have been very rich, and I'm going to listen to it again. But it seems particularly, you, you seem to have particularly emphasized that this state we call enlightenment, if it is possible at all, is gradual. And that the image of the Buddha becoming enlightened while sitting under the Bodhi tree sometimes gives us a sense that it happened all at once. Yes. And, and, uh, but that was rather his, the beginning of his enlightenment, perhaps. Well, no, I think the understanding there is that um, the beginning of his enlightenment began eons and eons before when he made the resolve, I want to wake up. There's a whole story around... I mean, it's, it's a mythical story. In my understanding, it's a mythical story, but... Um, you know, it's, it's said that eons and eons before he had met a, a previous Buddha, that he had met a Buddha that um, inspired him so much, he, he had the aspiration, I would like to become 
a fully awakened Buddha, fully awakened Buddha. So he had that aspiration, and that aspiration set into motion eons and eons of cultivating wholesome actions, wholesome intentions, and making a big mess of things. <laughs> there's, there's all these stories. I mean, actually, he didn't very much make a big mess of things, very, very much. I mean, the, the, there's all, the, the stories are, again, mythical kinds of stories, are told in the Jataka tales. And they're basically stories about, uh, they're kind of like Aesop's fables in a way. You know, they're that flavor of story. And, you know, they tell stories about, you know, the bird and the, the snake and the, and the monkey and how they all got together and, you know, what they learned. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of story. But there's always some moral of the story about what it was, what quality the Buddha was cultivating. Now, he was cultivating generosity in that one. And he was cultivating um, letting go and renunciation in this one. And he was cultivating honesty in this one. So it, it's the story of the Buddha over eons, cultivating the qualities. And all of that comes together in a moment under the tree when he sees, oh, here's how the whole structure of craving and clinging is put together. So um, in, in one sense, he had, he had a very gradual path, but in, in another sense, there was a very sudden awakening. And... Um, um, that there's one way of understanding that, that we cultivate the... I mean, it is very much cultivating the ground. We cultivate the ground for um, um, understanding. And out of that ground, insight can come. We can't make insight happen, but we can cultivate the soil. And, you know, for, the, the, the Buddha talked about his path being a gradual path. It's not... And for me, too, you know, it really feels like a lot of my understanding, a lot of my insight has come in a very gradual way. There have been a few of those moments of, oh, I see. But, but more, it's the, you know, very gradual, slow wearing away of the tendencies that we've built up over years. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that. Thank you. And it's time to stop, so... Thank you for your attention.